0: Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. We're
1: in John chapter 8, verses 1 through verse 11. However, I need you to back it up for just a moment to the last verse of chapter 7. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, I urge you to open them up. If you do not have a Bible, I ask that maybe you purchase a good Bible. I'm using the New American. It works for me. It's a good, accurate one. Order one for Christmas if you'd like. We're going to have ones put in the pews in front of you so you can have them to borrow, but get a Bible. Those of you that are opening up your Bible to Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, and starting at verse 53 of the last chapter, you're going to notice that somewhere in your margin, if you have a good study Bible, it's going to say something like this. Well in later manuscripts they added the story of the adulterous woman. It's not numbered maybe in the early manuscripts and you might be scratching your head and thinking "Ooh, maybe this is not a part of inspired word of God. Normally I would just preach it anyway and let it go and not make a big deal over it but as your pastor and wanting to equip you and proper Bible knowledge, I want you to have an answer for those issues. And I don't know that I'll be able to satisfy all your questions, but it is important that we find out, is this passage of Scripture credible for us to listen to and to apply to our life? There's another passage in Mark chapter 16, and perhaps at another time I'll answer those questions about that passage. So to do that, give me a few minutes, if you will, because I want to talk about when you come across a passage that some of those that are outside will say, "Whoa, that's not in Scripture, so we'll just kind of cut it out of our Bible and we'll have a real Holy Bible. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. But the point is still this. You'll get that on Freight Train later. That you have two ways that we look at Scripture to find out the veracity of it, or is it a part of Holy Writ? Two general ways would be what we call internal evidence And then we talk about external evidence. Internal evidence would be, well, what does the Greek say? You know, what does it have to say in the context of the flow of the chapter? And what is it saying in the context of it actually being what it says to be? So we talk about, we call the internal aspects of it. I'll talk about some in a moment. Then you have the external evidences. And the external evidences deals with the language. It deals with the early church fathers. What did they have to say about it? Perhaps some of the more reliable manuscripts that might be out there. So there's the external, outside of the scripture, what it might have to say. So you have internal and external. Well, let me give you some of the arguments of why some people would think that this would not be found in scripture, this portion of scripture, by the internal evidence. The first would be, we call it the verse or the passage placement. That means this passage it's placed here. It seems like it's a, it's a wrong puzzle piece put into this puzzle of this beautiful picture of God's word. It's kind of being forced in there. Well, the reason they come to that conclusion is when you read through the story and then you read where it's found, it's kind of odd to be placed there because Jesus was in the temple and he's talking about the rituals of the temple at the Feast of Tabernacles. Those of you who were with us last week get that message and you know what we're talking about. Primarily the pouring out of the water. Later on in chapter 8 of John, you're going to see he moves back into the tabernacle illustration again by being the light. We talked about the big lights that were in the tabernacle and it would be the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths and how that worked out. And so this is kind of odd put in there as far as placement. Some think that, well, maybe it could have been placed at different behind other verses here. Well, I don't know that that necessarily means that the scripture is not inspired by God. Another internal evidence argument would be the vocabulary. If you'll look for a moment at verse 1, it says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Their argument is this. John really doesn't speak much about the Mount of Olives until it gets all the way to the end of Jesus' life. They call it the last week. The technical phrase is the Passion Week, the Suffering Week of Christ. You'll find it in the other Gospels, and they talk about him going to Mount Olives when it was the last week. This portion of scripture is dealing with six to nine months before the last week of Jesus' life. So they think, hmm, it must not be then. It's out of order. It's not in the right place. So they use that. You go back into the passage, you're going to see two words there identifying two groups of people. If you look carefully at verse 3, it says, The scribes and the Pharisees. John does not use scribes in scripture here at least he doesn't in any other place but here and when they use the term scribes and pharisees together Matthew and Mark and Luke will refer to him but not John so they say this would be kind of out of character for John I'll tell you the difference in what the scribes and pharisees were when I begin to expose this passage exposit it later on so they say well that must mean that it can't be a part of it either and so it must not be the case So again, you have what they say internal evidence might throw some question on it. Now let's move to the external evidence. The external evidence pretty much boils down to this. We don't have the original manuscripts any longer, but we have copies of the original manuscripts. And we have so many copies of the original manuscripts that we know what the original manuscripts would be like because we can test them. So they look at the copies of the original manuscripts and they see that this story is not found in the copies of the original manuscript. So now the question, where did this come from? So now you have to go through church history, you go through other writings. Greek scholars far more understanding this than I do come to the conclusion that this is a real event that occurred. They find out that it did not only occur, but other church fathers do believe that it existed and it could even exist in this portion of scripture. Those would be people like Jerome, Ambrose, and Augustine, which are highly respected for their accuracy when they're talking about things of the Lord and Scripture, etc. That all being said, you're probably wondering, well, Stan, what do you think? Well, first of all, it doesn't matter if this is not the exact right place for it. My bigger question is, is it really inspired of God? I have no doubt that this is inspired of God. I lean in the direction that it would not be necessarily a severe problem for it to be found right here even though it might seem out of the scheme of where it is because God will sometimes bring in a truth wherever he wants or amplify a truth and it might seem like it's out of order and it's not. And just because John didn't use scribes or he didn't use the term scribes and Pharisees that means nothing to me because sometimes a writer will say something only once and that doesn't mean that because he didn't say at other times that it's not authentic. So now doing more study of the guys who have taken a lot of time going through this passage, I've come to the following conclusion, and I think this might help you. I'm going to quote from a commentator by the name of Westcott, and he wrote the Gospel of John Commentary, not the Gospel of John, but the Commentary. And here's what he says. Yet this passage is beyond doubt an authentic fragment of apostolic tradition. In other words, this is really coming from the apostles who lived at that time, and it can be trusted. Another person wrote this, coming from Bruce Metzger in the text of the New Testament, and he says, which I think is really neat, he says, It contains no teaching that contradicts the rest of Scripture. The picture it paints of the wise, loving, forgiving Savior is consistent with the Bible's portrait of Jesus Christ. Nor is it the kind of story the early church would have made up about Christ, meaning the fact that Jesus Christ didn't go soft. He had a truth to be able to teach. And then finally, one more writer said this. Most of the limited early support for its authenticity comes from Western manuscripts and versions and from Western church fathers, again, such as Jerome, Ambrose, and Augustine. All that being said is simply this. I don't have enough evidence that would cause me to say that this is not inspired of God. I do not have enough evidence that convinces me that this is in a wrong place of scripture and that it was added only later on. So therefore, I'm going to assume that this is what God wants us to have for today. There is deep truth in it that doesn't contradict any other parts of scripture. So it's inspired and placed here for us to learn today. And so I want us to lean into this passage and not worry about what some people might want to critique or criticize this passage of being about because remember, Satan would want to do everything he can to depower the word of God so that it would not have the profound impact upon our life. And should I have enough time and we go through just these few verses, I believe you're going to see the deep, profound truth that this passage has that is accurately and vitally connected to systematic theology and how it relates to us when, I say this lightly, we are caught with our hand in the cookie jar and we're now ready to have a second chance. So let's begin this passage and I'm gonna just bring us back to the throne in prayer and then we'll start. Our gracious heavenly father, I don't know if I adequately explained, but father, I do believe that what was explained regarding the veracity of scripture in this context that you have a message about you to us for our life, to know you and to have a life in agreement with you. So Lord, I ask you to help me now to speak these truths with grace and tenderness, gentleness and kindness, and yet at the same time, bring about the conviction that can only come from the Holy Spirit about sin, and particularly today, this sin of adultery. Now, Father, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's go to the passage and uh, picking up at verse 53. It says, Everyone went to his home, but Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives, or went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and he began to teach. I thought that's kind of interesting because some people say, Why did he sit down? That was something that rabbis would do. That was a sign when they sat down. They were teachers, they would sit. Not that I'm a rabbi, but sometimes I may get to be so old that we'll move this pulpit aside, we'll have a stool up here, and I'll just kind of sit and speak to you. That is not a sign of disrespect or a lack of value. It was a sign of he was being very much like the rabbis of the day, rabbinically teaching them. I thought this is interesting because verse 3 says, He's beginning to teach. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him. Now before I get into the whole interpretation... I thought this was interesting for those of you that teach Bible studies. Those of you that are ready to start imparting something to someone. And just as you're getting ready to begin, something happens that distracts you away from what you're going to teach. Something that was a divine interruption. Well, this is with Jesus. So this situation of these scribes and Pharisees coming wasn't because Jesus is teaching. He said, I don't know, what are you guys doing here? I've got my stuff I want to teach. Jesus already knew this, and I believe God is so sovereign that he got ready to teach, he brought the people in, mentally they were ready to receive a truth from him, and then he had them come in with a real life situation so he can unpack who he was and the whole message of grace and mercy and the holiness of God. So all of that was happening, so now here's what you can take home with you. If you're teaching and someone asks a question, if you're teaching and there's a redirect, I don't mean someone who's being a bizarre person, but something is happening, God might very well be using that as an opportunity for a teachable moment right then. So slow down a little bit, rest in the Lord, get your thoughts together and sense, how does God want to use this at this time? May I tell you those that are teaching, sometimes if you're teaching and people have questions, if you don't answer those questions... Often they shut down and don't listen to the rest of the stuff that you have until you answer those questions. If you uh, believe that, would you say, "Uh Uh uh-huh? Now let me give you one other thing. Sometimes something is said and you're so busy writing your question down and wanting to get that question answered. You're asking them, what do they say, blah, 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 blah. You don't pay attention long enough and if you did, often that question could be answered for you ahead of time. And so you want to pay attention, make sure that you have your questions asked, and then they'll be answered at the appropriate time. So Jesus is beginning here. Well, let's go back to it. it. says the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, some of you that are new to this, what's a scribe, what's a Pharisee? The scribes were basically Jewish people that were lawyers. Now, those lawyers, those scribes would often be Pharisees. Not every Pharisee was a scribe, but a scribe would be a Pharisee. So you see kind of the, a subgroup of the Pharisees. Now, there are four groups that were hostile against the Lord. You had the Pharisees, You had the Essenes. You also had the Sadducees, and in some measure here you had the Zealots. So all that four group was against him. If you follow the Pharisees, even though they were against him, occasionally one would pop up that weren't against the that wasn't against the Lord, and that would be Nicodemus. I think Nicodemus came to know Christ as Savior, and at the end there was a few others that seemed to lean toward Jesus Christ. But for the predominant part, these were people that were against the Lord and were trying to trick the Lord to try to reveal that he wasn't a person of integrity or he wasn't who he claimed to be. So that's what they were doing. So they brought a woman. Woman caught in adultery. If you want to drop down to verse 4, it says, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. When you see caught in adultery, it wasn't that they read some emails about it. It wasn't that they heard rumors about it. When it says caught in the very act, and I don't want to take your mind further than it needs to go, but I want you, because it is important for you to know though, she was in the act. And I believe with another man, although that's my opinion here, but, it, but I have no other reason to think otherwise. But she was caught in the act. Now that is important, I'll come back to that. But you can imagine what she must have felt like. Here she was, committed a sin. I would like to believe she knew that she was doing wrong because she knew the law. There was a law thing going on. She was Jewish. They wouldn't bring a Gentile to him. So it was a Jew that was some degree of understanding the law. What happens if you're caught in adultery, if you're doing adultery? There's a stiff penalty to pay. So they catch her. Men, how embarrassing that must have been. You're in the act. You're having to put your clothes back on. You're now drug out in front of everybody. You're brought to a religious place, which is amplifying surround sound. You're breaking the law, and you know what's coming next. And you don't just get a na 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 na. You're going to be stoned to death. And let your own mind wander what it's like to have five and ten pound stones thrown at you, so many at one time you can't shove them off, and it's piling until you die. She knows that it's happening. In the temple, in front of this rabbi, whether it's Jesus that she knows as being the Lord God Almighty, but it was a teacher. She referred to him later as sir, so there was a degree of respect for at least the position that he uh, held as a teacher type. And so all that is happening in the center of the court at that moment. Now I don't know where you might be with you carrying in your own mind right now a sin in your life. That might be the case. And there's a couple of ways that you could respond to that sin in your life. One is, you know, I can handle this sin. I can navigate around it. Um, It's all right. Everybody does it. Um, I've seen others that got away with it. So I can handle it. Some of you might say, um, you know, I'm doing these things. But, you know, I do an awful lot of good deeds. And those of you who are Christians might say, I do an awful lot of Christian things. I serve the Lord. And so this little thing, you know, it's not a big deal because of all the good that I do. May I tell you that often Christian leaders not only have that attitude, they take it to another level, which is almost an entitlement effort. I do all this for everybody else. Can't you at least have, let me have this one little closet of my life to myself? I just do all of this. I mean, I'm normal too. And they have that kind of attitude. Others will say, you know, I'm doing this, but it's not really my fault. They seduced me. They caused this. My wife didn't do enough for me. My husband doesn't do enough for me. My parents did this. I'm just kind of, everybody does it and I can't, I'm I'm in a dorm room. We're all doing this stuff. And so you blame everybody else with this. I don't know. I can tell you, if you have sin in your life and you try to cover it up, be sure your sin will find you out. That's the word of God. If you say, I don't know that I can overcome this thing, I want you to know greater is he that's in you than he's in the world. Jesus Christ and his power can help you overcome that. If you're now saying that, you know, it's okay if I sin just a little bit here, I do so many other good deeds... Romans 6, 1 and 2 says about your grace that if we think we can continue in sin we should not do that. Those of you that think you can continue in sin the Bible says don't. Grace can abound? No. Don't. God says that there is a payday someday. You will suffer for it. Now I'm not here to heap more guilt on you because some of you are already so guilty and you're trying to get out of it your way but I want you to If you can't see the flames yet, maybe you can smell the smoke, and it might cause you to move. Swindoll says sometimes that um, if you feel the heat, it'll move your feet, and maybe that's what'll happen here. So I look at this passage, and I think you can't cover it up. You can't justify it. What you really have to do is actually confront it and hit it head on. Let's go a little bit further in the passage here. The Pharisees come up and they said, "Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in their very act. Now in the law of Mo, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman." Now, I put in your study notes there, Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, but there are many other passages that keep amplifying the law, but again saying that if they're caught in adultery, that the person is going to have to die. But I want you to look one little thing at this passage because this is kind of an encouraging passage to understand where they're going to go next. Look at it, if you will, Deuteronomy twenty two twenty two. It says, if a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. Would you mark that? Both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you, you shall purge the evil from Israel. Now, we already know about the sin of, of lying together and that they're going to have to die and all of that. But the two things that I thought was interesting, I'm going to give the, the second first, and then I'll give you the first second. The second in the passage says, so that you can purge the evil from Israel. The severity of those people caught in adultery, it wasn't that they were given a time out. It wasn't just that they had some issues and they had to do some penance, so to speak. They actually had to be exterminated and they did it by way of stoning them to death and they did it for a reason, that Israel would be purged. And so as I read through that, I can only extrapolate from that that adultery is so severe in what it does relationally between families, between society, that when you have adultery permitted promoted that you have an evil like cancer in a society and in the Old Testament the only way to deal with it before they had grace and power and Holy Spirit was it had to be purged And so I think with adultery, it's not like I'll do it once in a while. I'll just, uh, maybe when I'm really down, family's out of town, I'll go see a woman and all that. I want you to know it has got to be stopped. Now, I don't have time to open this thing up politically, but as you see what's happening out there with the sanctity of marriage in itself, you can see we are way down this slippery slope into total destruction. This evil needs to be purged. It's a very serious matter. So as I look at this passage, it's saying there. Now the second part that I want to now talk about is where's the man? Look at it very carefully. It says this woman was taken. The law commanded that this woman would be stoned. In reality, if they were together caught in the act, obviously there have to be the other person with whom she's, having adul- she's committing adultery. So therefore, where is that person? So this thing's already failing the smell test. Let's go a little bit further and you're going to see how it does. What then do you say, Jesus? What then do you say? And I love this because Jesus is getting ready to give a profound statement that I want to unpack for you. But some of you that are hearing this, you're saying, okay, what is Jesus going to really say? I know that adultery is wrong. What is the Lord really going to say about all of this to me? Well, to set you up, maybe you're that person that today the Spirit of God is catching you in your form of sin, and it might be adultery if that's where you are at this particular point, right where you are, you could look at it and say, this is the worst day of my life. I can only imagine when the person who was a decorated military officer who became completely in charge of one of our most important and vital security agencies in America was confronted with His adulterous affair. I could only imagine what what crossed his mind to say, this is the worst day of my life. It will affect my wife of 37 years. It will affect my children, my grandchildren. Then it moves. It will affect the one with whom I was having this affair. It will affect her husband, those kids. Now it moves into career. It moves into the shattering of an example and the trust by all the other people, in the, and it goes on. It's like you dropped a huge, rock, a nuclear explosion just occurred. Worst day of their life. I don't want to go soft on that, but folks, I also want to be a, a godlike, a, a man like, like God who has grace. I think that person went from the worst day of their life, and they're at a very pivotal moment since they've already committed the sin, to move it to the best day of their life. Now, why do you think I would say that that worst day of their life when it was exposed could turn into, in a sense, the best day of their life? Now, you cannot put Humpty Dumpty back together again. You cannot unring a bell. But it gives the opportunity that that sin could stop and possibly there can be some healing. So now that can move from what was the worst day of their life to the better day of their life. Now, that being said, I want you to look at your own heart for a moment. As long as we're fighting God, as long as we're now up against this and we're not listening to the Lord, His truth cannot come into our life. And so until you understand who you are, you are a sinner who, are, who is breaking the moral law of God, and you know so much that it's the case, and you say, I want it to stop. It's at that moment you can now start to become the person of God He wants you to be. So until you know who you are, you cannot become what God wants you to be because you're still hanging on to the things that you want to do and massage and make excuses over it. So whether or not you and I get a second chance when we sin, sure depends upon God's grace and His mercy, but it also depends upon us surrendering to God and to allow that to come into our life and how very, very important that is. Well, let's go back to the passage now. So it says here, Now in the law, Moses Moses commanded us to stone the women. What then do you say? And so they were testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger he wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said to them, He who is without sin, that famous line among you, Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and he rode on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one.